Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Last week, we finished up talking about the book of Acts in our Bedford Alliance reading plan. Now, I know we went out of order just a little bit. Technically, we're still reading the last two chapters of Acts this week, but we went ahead and wrapped up the book of Acts last week so that this week we can focus on our next book, which is the Gospel of John. So I want to give us today a little bit of intro and a little bit of background on the book of John. So first of all, who was John? And and first, let me say this. There's been a movement in Western scholarship, so to speak, to question the authorship of, of everything. So you're going to hear people saying things like, Moses wasn't the primary author of the Pentateuch, which are the, the first five books of the Bible. You'll hear people say Isaiah didn't write his book, and and so on. And even outside of Scripture, You're going to find people saying that Homer didn't write the Iliad and the Odyssey, or even that Shakespeare didn't write his plays. So this is getting pretty ridiculous. But understand that scholars with these views, they tend to set aside primary source data, or what I would call the obvious data, in favor of more elaborate theories, so to speak. Basically, they're not willing to trust the evidence that we have, not because it's not good evidence, but because there's this bias of skepticism. So all of that to say that we have very good reason to believe and trust that the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. Okay, There's, there's no evidence of, of anything to the contrary. And we have testimony from the early church fathers. And when I say early church fathers... What I mean is the church leaders after the original apostles. So you had the the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, minus Judas, who was later replaced. After them, they invested in the next generation of leaders. They they helped institute the next round of leaders. That was the beginning of the, the church fathers. So, for example, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John. Okay, so Irenaeus, he was one of the early church fathers. He was a leader in the early church, and he was not very far removed at all from the original disciples. He was not far removed at all from John. And Irenaeus wrote in about 180 AD that John wrote the fourth gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he wrote it while he was living in Ephesus. Now, this, that's just one example from the early church fathers, but there's universal testimony amongst the, the early church fathers that it was John who wrote this gospel. And then we also have the internal evidence from the book itself. The book of John tells us that the author was one of the 12 disciples, and more specifically, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so who was that? Well, we know that Jesus was especially close to three of his disciples. Remember, Peter, James, and John. 
Peter and the two sons of, of Zebedee. And we see passages where Peter is with, he's named with the disciple Jesus loved. So do you know what that means? It means Peter isn't the one who Jesus loved. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus loved Peter. But as far as the specific title of the disciple whom Jesus loved, it wasn't referring to Peter because we see Peter named alongside of whoever this disciple is. So what about James? Could it have been James? Well, we know from Acts 12 that James was put to death relatively early in the church's history, probably about 44 AD. So it's pretty unlikely that he could have written this this gospel. So the disciple Jesus loved refers to John. He, He makes the most sense. So when you combine that internal evidence from the book with the testimony of the church fathers, and we also have to keep in mind that all of our, our manuscripts, all the New Testament manuscripts that we have, including some fragments as early as the second century, they all attribute this gospel to John. So when we look at the internal evidence from, from the book, we look at the manuscript evidence and the early church fathers, all of it overwhelmingly points to the fact that John wrote this gospel. It's very strong evidence, so we don't have to to doubt that. So now getting back to the question, who was John? First of all, this was not John the Baptist, by the way. Okay, just just to clarify, that was a different John. Remember, John the Baptist was killed before Jesus was. This is John the Apostle. Okay, he was one of the, the 12 disciples. He was the son of Zebedee. And the brother of James, who was also part of the the inner circle of of Jesus. Now, one interesting thing to note, a lot of people don't know this. John and Jesus were actually likely cousins. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the specific verses here. I'm not going to read them all just for the sake of time. But this is something that you can look up on your own time a little bit more. But basically, it comes down to this. We know that there were several women who witnessed Jesus's crucifixion. Now, there were other women there, but there are a few women who were mentioned specifically. And these women are mentioned in all four Gospels. They're named in Matthew, Mark, and John. And from Matthew's account, we learn that one of the women was the mother of James and John. From Mark's account, we learn that her name is Salome. And from John's account, we learn that she is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if we piece together the evidence from all of these Gospels, we learn that Salome would be Jesus's aunt. Or in other words, James and John would be Jesus's first cousins. So that's just just an interesting note. Again, we don't know that for sure, but it seems based on the evidence that we have, that John and Jesus actually would have been first cousins. And John and his family, they lived in Galilee, and his his brother James and his father were fishermen, but they were they were probably fairly well off. And and one interesting thing is that John and his brother James are actually called sons of thunder by Jesus in Mark 3:17. Quite the nickname, right? Sons of thunder. Now, it doesn't say specifically why Jesus gives them that nickname. But remember a couple things. Remember, James and John are the ones who ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire from heaven on a village. Remember that story? So I think that gives us a little bit of insight here into their their personality. 
And they're also the ones who asked Jesus if they could sit, sit next to Jesus in his glory. Remember that when one of them wants to sit on his right and one of them on his left. So they had a tendency to say things without thinking somewhat, it seems, not unlike Peter. But that just gives us a little bit of insight into John's personality. Now, just a quick summary of who John is then. He's one of the 12 disciples. He's part of the inner circle of Jesus, more specifically the the disciple Jesus loved. He's likely a cousin of Jesus. He's the brother of James, and he's a fisherman. He grew up a fisherman. As far as his temperament goes, he was likely a little bit quick-tempered, maybe quick to speak. But what's interesting is that after walking with Jesus, John becomes known for his love. If you go read the book of 1 John, which I know we're not there in our reading plan yet, but if you have some extra time, go read the book of 1 John, and you're not going to be thinking son of thunder in your mind. Jesus can change all of us. That, that's what this shows. John becomes known for his, his love. So now when was this book written? Well, early church tradition, again, some evidence from the, the church fathers, tells us that this book was likely written near the end of the first century. Okay, and it was likely the last of the Gospels to be written. But it's difficult to say for sure exactly when it was written. But based on internal evidence and, and some of the evidence we have from the early church history, we can say somewhere probably between about 70 and 100 A.D. Now, as far as why John is writing, he actually tells us. He comes right out and tells us. He says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he's he's writing so that people might believe in Jesus. This is really an, an evangelistic book. It's evangelistic in nature. And this is part of the reason why people will often recommend that others start with reading the book of John. When they're getting into reading the Bible, oftentimes people will say, start with the gospel of John. But one thing you're going to see as you read John is that he doesn't always explain everything. There's really an art to his writing. Commentator Dr. James Hamilton writes, like a master composer of music, John does not explicitly say what everything means. Instead, he lets the rhymes and reminiscences, signals and hints, provoke his audience to worship Jesus. Surpassing the wonder one might feel in response to the music of a Bach or a Beethoven, John intends his audience to stand amazed at the Nazarene. So, in some ways, John can be the most difficult of the Gospels to understand. It's very different than the other three Gospels. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Syn, S-Y-N, meaning together. It means together. Optic means to see. So synoptic means to see together. And we call them the synoptic Gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. But John is completely different. It's, It's much more theological in a sense. It really emphasizes the divinity of Jesus. And there's going to be things as you're reading this book, you're not going to understand everything at times. But as you're reading, don't miss the big picture here. Don't forget that John isn't trying to answer every question that we have. He ultimately, as Dr. James Hamilton says here, he ultimately wants us to stand in awe of Jesus. That's what this is all about. So don't miss that. Now, this week we are reading John chapters 1 through 3. 
And one quick thing I want to note about the structure of John is that in chapters 1 through 12, you'll see that there are three different Passovers mentioned, which means that at least three different years pass during these chapters, three different years in chapters 1 through 12. Then chapters 13 through 20 cover the events of an 8 to 10 day period surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. So there's a lot more time covered earlier in the book compared to later on. The pace really slows down as you get later into the book. Now, just a couple things I want to mention from the chapters this week. First of all, John starts his gospel off with a bang. Remember, Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus going back to Abraham. Mark starts his gospel by talking about John the Baptist. Luke starts with a genealogy that goes back to Adam. But John starts with, in the beginning, which is clearly a reference to to Genesis 1. So John goes all the way back. And he declares some, some of the most mysterious, deep, incredible truths. But he does it so simply and so beautifully. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John is getting into the mystery of the Trinity here. He says the word was with God and he was God. With and was. So whatever God is, the word is. Yet he's also distinct because he was with God. So he's referring to the Father and the Son in the Trinity. The Son is the Word of God. He's not a force. He's a person. The Son is God. And he's also with God, the Father. They're co-equal. They are, they're one in essence. Because remember, we have one God. We worship one God. And yet, the Father and Son are distinct. They are separate persons who have a relationship with each other. Now, I know this is something that we can never truly wrap our minds around, but just know that all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all equally God. They're one in essence, but three distinct persons. Okay, so just keep that in mind. I know that's something we cannot wrap our finite minds around, but that's what John is teaching us here. Now, John makes it crystal clear in this passage as he's talking about the word that he's referring to Jesus. Jesus is God. There's no doubting that in John's gospel. He leads off with it. He says Jesus is fully God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was not created. Jesus is not created. The Son of God was not created. He is the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father, one in essence with the Father, but distinct. And all things were created through him. Verse 3 says that. Then in verse 14, it says the word, talking about the word again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. Now that doesn't mean that he stopped being God. The word who is God also took on humanity. If we stop and think about this, I think this is something we often take for granted. This is truly the most amazing event in human history. Think about it. The all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God, the one who created the universe, the one who spoke stars and galaxies into existence, the one who created all of life, 
He became a man. I like to say the infinite became an infant. The infinite became an infant. Think about that one for a while. And this phrase, dwelt among us, can also be translated tabernacled among us. And that's, that's a clear allusion back to how God dwelled among his people in the Old Testament. Remember, God's presence dwelled with Israel first in the, the tabernacle, which was really just a, a tent-like structure. It was basically a mobile temple, something they, they could take with them on the go. And then God dwelled with them in the more permanent Jerusalem temple. But eventually God's presence left the temple because of Israel's unfaithfulness. But now his presence has returned in Jesus. God himself is now walking among his people. The incarnate word of God has come to earth. God in the flesh. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. The tabernacle and the temple pointed forward to Jesus. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, one other thing I want to point out here, I know we're already running short on time, but I I think everyone, even non-Christians, are pretty familiar with John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's, It's one of the simplest, most profound, and concise expressions of the gospel. It really is. John is very good at taking these huge, life-changing truths and distilling them down into something so simple and, and beautiful. But one thing I want to point out here is the word so in this verse. Most people tend to think that this refers to the quantity of God's love. He loves us so much. But that's actually not the sense of the text here. Now, let me be clear here, okay? God does love us so much. All right, I'm not saying that he doesn't. Just want to be clear on that. But that's not what this text is actually referring to. The sense of this text is actually more like, for this is how God loved the world. Or as the Christian Standard Bible puts it, the CSB, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son and so on. So this verse isn't telling us how much he loves us, but how he loved us. It's telling us how he demonstrated his love for us. So here's what I want you to take away from this. If you ever doubt God's love for you, think about the cross. Think about the cross. Think about the fact that God himself, the creator of the universe, humbled himself to the point of becoming a man. And he suffered and died for you. We don't have to doubt God's love. This is something Pastor Ryan has said before. Your circumstances don't reflect God's love for you. Your circumstances don't reflect God's love for you. The cross reflects God's love for you. So even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, we are going to go through difficult circumstances. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. He's already demonstrated his love for you at the cross. So if you're doubting God's love, don't look at the circumstances around you. Look at the cross. If you interpret God's love for you based on your circumstances, you're going to doubt his love. You're going to struggle. 
Jesus never promised an easy life. He said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. He said, you will. But then he goes on and says, take heart for I have overcome the world. We will face storms and trials in this life. We will. But one day Jesus is going to make all things right and we're going to spend all of eternity in his presence. And even in the midst of a storm, you can know that God loves you because he already demonstrated his love for you. He loved us in this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God became a man to save mankind. So as we wrap up here, I want to leave you with a thought. As you start reading the book of John, maybe you've already started reading, but don't just read the book of John for intellectual gain. And, and this really goes for all of scripture, but I want to challenge you, especially as you read the book of John here, don't read it just for intellectual purposes. Now, don't misunderstand me. Knowledge is important. It's, it's part of the reason that we're doing this podcast so that we can have a correct understanding. But like I alluded to earlier, and like, I, like that quote that I read to you from, from Dr. James Hamilton, John writes so that you can ultimately stand in awe of Jesus Christ. So as you read through the book of John, I challenge you to pray for God to open your eyes. Pray for him to open your eyes to to show you his glory in a new way. Cry out to him to, to give you eyes to see more of him. I believe that's a prayer that God wants to answer. You know, I fear that that many times in the Christian life, and myself included, okay, I'm including myself in this. I fear that many times we grow bored with God. And here's the thing, to become ineffective in the Christian life, you don't have to renounce God. You just have to grow bored with him. And I fear that many of us have become apathetic toward God. We just kind of yawn at him. But here's the thing, we're all in awe of something. That's how we're wired. That's how you're wired. And whatever you're in awe of shapes the direction of your life. Whatever amazes you, captures you, fascinates you, astounds you, it's going to consume your thoughts. And it's going to influence everything that you do. So are you in awe of God? As you read the Gospel of John, cry out to God for him to increase your awe of him. And I can promise you this. Once you catch a glimpse, once you truly catch a glimpse of God's beauty and and glory and majesty, you will never be the same. So let's cry out to him to increase our awe of him.